This is, a, this is a horrible time of year uh, if you don't like football. Uh, when I say football, I'm talking about the football that you play with your hands, not your feet, which always is confusing for some people in this country, but American football. Um, this time of year, you can't get away from it. In fact, last night, uh, you guys, how many of you guys know Pastor Keith Jenkins? Yeah, a little shout out for him. He came over to my house last night because um, he's a big Ravens fan. He said, I want to watch the game. So he came over. He had his Ravens jersey on. He was so excited. The night started so good. And then it just sort of plummeted as the evening went on. By the middle of the third quarter, he literally just got up and goes, I'm going home. And walked out of my house, which was really good because I wanted to watch the Blazers game. So I turned over to the Blazers game and then, and then I got disappointed. But uh but, but if, if you like football, if you're a fan, this is a great time of year. And I, I love football for all sorts of reasons. Um, 25 years of, of ministry, I can just tell you, I sleep to football on Sunday afternoons better than golf. Uh, so I really love football from that standpoint. But there's also other little nuances of the game that I really enjoy. Um, there's this thing that happens, and you're going to see it over this next couple of weeks. You see this thing called the two-minute drill. Anyone know what the two-minute drill is? Yeah, two-minute drill is this thing that happens towards the end of a game, actually the last two minutes of a game, when a team is usually down by one score. Uh, most, most teams have a special offensive set that they begin to run in those final two minutes, and it's a quick offense, it's a hurry-up offense, it's an offense that's really efficient and kind of moves the team down the field very quickly. If you're like me and you're watching your team do the two-minute drill, you probably think what I think, and that is, why don't you start the game this way? I'm always watching the game going, could you guys play this way the whole time? I mean, maybe you wouldn't be in this situation. But nonetheless, when you're in that scenario, there's just something that happens. I think it's one of the most exciting things in sports. When your quarterback has the ball and he's firing on all eight cylinders and moving the ball down the field in those final minutes, when the running back is breaking through the defensive line and getting extra yardage, when you see that start to happen and the momentum starts to build, so does your heart rate and your excitement, right? Like, you just start getting into it. You're like, oh, yeah, this is going to happen. Like, we're going to win. They're going to come back. That is one of the most epic feelings in sport, right? Knowing that your team has the ball with just a few minutes left, and you're going to win. Now, what also happens in that same moment is we experience some of the greatest heartache ever known to man. <laughs> Because inevitably, it seems to happen, at least for the teams I root for, that your team is marching down the field, they're taking yards, everything's happening the right way, and then there's that one pass that's just a little too high. And the receiver tips it into the air, and all time stops, and everything gets quiet. And then you see that ball land perfectly in the hands of the opposing team. And you immediately, the first thing you do is you look at the clock to see, is there still enough time? Is there any chance? And you know there's not, and all of your hopes are dashed on the rocks of that moment, right? And there's like this moment where you go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And everybody across the, the universe that watches football in that moment asks the same question, and it's this, why? Why? Why do I give myself to this? Why did he throw the ball? Why didn't they run? All of those different questions start coming up, and you just ask why. Now, as I think about that, I also realize that's a parallel to an experience that a lot of us have in our life. Um, some of us, we get into these moments where we start running what I would call the two-minute drill of life, where we start firing on all eight cylinders. Maybe you go through a season. Maybe it's a couple of weeks. Maybe it's a couple of months, but everything starts to happen the way that you want things to happen. You're making good decisions economically, maybe relationally. You're not saying stupid things like you normally do. You're functioning as a healthy human being. Maybe you're working out, you're exercising, you're taking care of yourself. And then all of a sudden, there's this moment where you suddenly do something, and it's the equivalent of throwing an interception at the height of the game. And you look at your life and you go, why? Like, what was I thinking? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did I make that decision? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? 
Why did I have this personal interception moment when it, it was nowhere near my radar? I never imagined that that would take, take place. I think it's interesting, you know, as you look at the Bible and you read the Bible, um, one of the interesting things about the Bible is that you start to discover the imperfections of humanity pretty early. <laughs> uh, if you started reading the Bible at the very beginning, you don't get very far, and you start saying that people are, we make bad choices. <laughs> And if you think that this is always a funny misconception, a lot of people think that Christianity is about perfect people pretending to be perfect, and yet the, the Bible, when you dive into it, is about a lot of imperfection, and a lot of people who are making really strange decisions with their lives. And it's not just the Old Testament, it's the New Testament too. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, he's talking and he says, very honestly, very transparent moment, he admits to this Roman church, he says, there are things that I want to do, and for some reason I can't do them. There are things I know I should be doing. There's things that I know in my, literally Paul says, there's stuff that I want to do and for some reason I can't find it within myself to make it happen. And then he says, and then there's stuff I know I shouldn't be doing and yet time and time again I do it. He just admits it. He says, there are times we throw interceptions. There's times we make mistakes. And the question stirs up, well, why, why do we do this? Why do we have these moments? What's the explanation for these inconsistencies or incongruities to what we know should be happening in our lives? And the answer to that question is really found in what we're talking about in this series. It's found in our souls. When we want to resolve the why, when we want to answer the question of how did this happen, it's found in our understanding, our care, our assessment of our souls. That's where we find this. Um, so last Sunday, I introduced this topic, and I just began talking about the current state of our soul, really talked about the reality that we have a soul, and, and just began to unpack, and very honestly, we all sort of admitted together that the soul is like this invisible elephant in the room that we never talk about. We sort of know it's there. We kind of anticipate that maybe being here, we're, we're changing something about it, but we're really not sure what we're doing with it. And because of that, because of our culture that we live in, our soul goes largely unattended. Um, we don't care for our souls. We don't understand our souls. We sort of ignore our souls. And yet the consequences of this are seen in all of these moments that are very difficult for us to explain. Why did somebody who knew better do that thing? How did I make that sort of decision? Now, I shared last week, and I want to share again this week, um, Part of my desire to engage this topic is actually born out of the realization that I actually need this. Um, uh, you're going to find that with me over the years, that uh, I often share the things that I'm wrestling with the most. And I realized that over this last little season of busyness and transition and the holidays, um, that I just, I, I've suddenly realized I think my soul needs some attention. And so over the past few weeks, I've been doing what I hope a lot of you have been doing. Since last Sunday, I've just been taking stock. I've been asking hard questions. I've been looking at my life. I've been having conversations. And, uh, and all of this, just wanting to attend to my soul. Now, in order to attend to our soul, though, I think we also have to understand our soul. And so last week, I wanted to heighten our awareness. This week, I want to raise our understanding. And I want to talk about the anatomy of our lives, the anatomy of your soul. What are we talking about when we describe this? Because we have to understand it if we're going to actually affect it and do something different. So I want to spend some time today talking about some of the details, talking about some of the anatomy, some of the intricacies of what it means to be a human being, and how all of our various parts work together as human beings, and then how those things are related to the care of our soul. So uh, in, in one of the things I mentioned last week, and I just want to mention this again, I'm going to talk about it later, is that our soul is the operating system for our lives. This is so important for us to understand. In other words, what is running your life at any given moment 
is not the circumstances of your life. What's running your life, it's not your thoughts. What's running your life is not your intentions. What's running your life is not your feelings. What is running your life is your soul. Underneath all of that other stuff is this this thing we call, this idea, this concept we call the soul, and that is the operating system. That is what correlates everything. That's what integrates everything. That's what holds everything together. The various dimensions of what it means to be human are held together with this thing called the soul. And that gets me thinking. In fact, this week I was thinking about one of my favorite cars. Uh, I'm a car. Is anybody else a car person? I'm a car person. I I love them. I know there's no real value in them. You don't have to send me emails about how they're depreciating assets. I I, lo- I just, lo- and, I, and I know that I don't find my identity in them. I just really like cars. And, and what's interesting, one of my favorite cars, um, I don't own it today. In fact, I remember the day I sold it, it drove down the street. I remember, do you ever have that moment you watch and you go, I just made a mistake? <laughs> I had that moment. It was, uh, it was an early 90s BMW. It was one of my favorite cars ever. When I owned it, it was 24 years old. Uh, and, and when you own a 24-year-old car, you learn things that... Um, 24-year-old cars need attention that newer cars don't. Amen? So, so I was driving this car, and I found myself realizing that my car, the value of my car, varied significantly when you looked it up on Craigslist. And the reason is this. That particular car, that particular model of car, is so intricate, and all of the various aspects of what makes that car what it is are so integrated that if one small important thing is off, it has implications on all of these other parts. So this car that could be of great value if all of those things are functioning properly can be picked up for just a few hundred dollars on Craigslist if they're not. And oftentimes, the reason that particular model of car is in disrepair is because someone didn't pay attention to some of the core issues that might have existed, and so slowly it disintegrates all around. That is the nature of our soul. Our soul, if it's unattended, has implications on all of these other areas of our life, and slowly but surely, we end up on Craigslist for a few hundred dollars. No. Um, (laughs) we, We find ourselves going, whatever happened? How did I get here? Well, it happened a while ago when we stopped paying attention to our souls. We have to understand the relationship that our soul has to the rest of our lives. So I'm going to take some time this morning and do something that's maybe a little bit more um, specific and more informational than, than what I would normally do, but I want to unpack completely who we are as people. And I want to do it by showing you some concentric circles that sort of help us understand how we're made up as human beings. And if you're taking notes, you might want to draw these things or maybe just imagine them, take a picture with your phone on the screen, something like that. But the first part of understanding of who we are is understanding that we have this thing called the will. The will is sort of the center of our being. Um, In the innermost part of who we are, there is this thing called the will. And the will represents this. This is your ability to choose. This is your ability to make a decision. You can say yes to things, and you can say no to things, and the reason you can say yes and the reason that you can say no is because of this thing called the will. It is something that God has given you. It's actually what makes you a human being and distinguishes you from other things. You have a will and you can choose. You're not just driven by desire. You're not just driven by emotions. You're not just driven by feelings, not by urges or cravings. You have a will. Uh, in the Bible, when it's describing the, the, the will of God, it actually talks about human beings having dominion. 
Because you have a will, you have rule, you have dominion. The will is something that we value and it's something that we utilize. But here's, here's the question. When you think about us having the will, you have to ask the question, if, if the will is so central, then why isn't spiritual life, this life we're living, this connectedness to God, why isn't this easier? Like, why can't I just simply stand up here, maybe once a year, save us all some time, and just say, everybody use your will and go do what God wants you to do, and be who God wants you to be. And we all just sit here and go, yep, you're right. I'm going to do that. And we walk out the door and everything's good. See you next year. Why can't I just tell people, hey, you know what? Just experience God's presence. Will yourself into God's presence. Just make the decision. Why can't we just choose that for ourselves? Here's why. The will is central to who we are, but the will is also very limited. Your will is central to who you are, but it's limited. In fact, let me just give you an example. Do you ever find yourself doing something that goes against your better judgment? I'll take that, hmm, (laughs) as the fact that you actually do eat too much ice cream, grab too many slices of cake, that you say things sometimes, and the words as they're leaving your mouth, you're trying to grab them and pull them back. You're like, no, don't do it. You know you shouldn't say it, and yet for some reason you do. You know you shouldn't do it, but some, for some reason you do. You know why. That's an example of the weakness of the will. Your will, it's, it's real. You have the ability to make these choices, but it's also incredibly weak. The will is very good at making simple but large commitments, like the decision to be married. I want to be married. You can make that decision with your will. Um, deciding to move somewhere, to buy a car. You can decide those things with your will. The will is good at those kinds of things, but the will is not very good at overriding habits, The will is not good at overriding patterns. It's not good at overriding attitudes. It's not good at overcoming those things. Those things are deeply rooted in us. And if you try to improve your soul by willing yourself towards it, you actually will exhaust yourself. You'll probably exhaust a few people around you too. But you'll exhaust yourself. Now why is this? Well, that's explained by the second part of who we are. Why is our will unable to do these things? Well, that's because we have this other part of us called the mind. And so we have the will, and then we have our mind. And uh, and in the ancient world, let me just explain this, that the, the biblical understanding of the mind, when we hear that language, it's actually encompassing the things that we think about and the things that we feel. Those two things in conjunction, the way we think and the way we feel, biblical language, uh, it pulls that into one category called the mind. So the thoughts are all of the ways that our person is conscious of things. What am I thinking about and what am I feeling about those things? And and you and I know this. This isn't new information for most of us in the room. Um, But thoughts and feelings are flowing through us all the time, right? All the time. Um, Usually just out of habitual pattern, right? And, And we understand willpower cannot often stop us from thinking about those. Some of us right now in the room, you're thinking about all sorts of things like, how long is he gonna be? When will he be done? Those kinds of things. You can't help that, by the way. But you just think about stuff. Our minds are always thinking. I am particularly ADD. I can't stop thinking about everything all the time. I'm just always thinking, right? And that's the way it works. But here's the deal. When I think thoughts, or when I have feelings, When I entertain things in this realm of who I am that are in opposition to what God wants for my life, it actually damages 
my soul. So when I allow this part of who I am to move in a direction that's incongruent with the wholeness God has for me, it actually damages my soul. In fact, um, the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 8. He says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So when your mind decides to move in these directions, when your feelings drive you towards certain things and you let those things determine the direction of your life and the decisions that you make, he says literally when, when those are set on the flesh, then your mind will lead you to a place that's ultimately destructive for your life. But when you let your mind, when you let your feelings move towards those things that the spirit is leading you towards, there's life, there's peace. So the mind can set your life in these two different directions. Which then brings us to the third part of, of who we are, and it's the body, which everybody knows we have this. This isn't a surprise, no, no surprises today here. Um, your body is your little kingdom, if you will. It is the one place where your will, your tiny little will, and your emotions and your feelings actually get to really be in charge. That's in your body. Um, if, if you had a mind and a will, but you had no body, there would be no expression of who those two things are. You have to have a body in order to do this. So um, you couldn't be you without a body. So our bodies, when you think about your body, the, phys the physiology of who you are, and this is fascinating, you already know this again, your physiology has all sorts of appetites, right? You have appetites that you don't even think about, right? You just crave certain things. You go, what, how do I distinguish a craving from something that I'm thinking about? Well, it's very difficult, right? You just suddenly want something. Well, that's a part of your body. That's a part of your physiology. Your body has cravings. Your body has habits. In fact, even more interesting, um, you can train your body to do things almost automatically. Your will and your mind at some point can actually shut off and go, you know what? We're going to leave the body to do this. Like, for example, did anybody spend an inordinate amount of time remembering how to tie their shoes this morning? Like, is it left over right or right over left? And is it over the top or under the knee? Like, how do you do that? No, you, I mean, the hardest thing was bending over, right? That was the toughest thing. <laughs> Once you got there, then you were like, okay, from here, I'm good, right? Certain things come naturally. I, um, I taught my three daughters how to drive. Uh, th there is a special jewel that goes in the crown of a person who teaches teenagers how to drive. People that do it for a living are saints, amen? <laughs> and my first daughter, I had no idea what I was getting into because I forgot what I did automatically. You know what I'm talking about? I didn't know what I didn't need. You know, those things that you just don't realize you have to tell somebody, like you actually need to press on the brake pedal when you're careening towards a car that stopped at a light. Like when you say slow down and they don't know what that means, you say, okay, that big pedal in the middle, you need to put your foot on it and press it hard right now. Like I remember those moments of sitting with my oldest daughter and, and God bless her for her grace towards her dad, but there were things like we'd be driving and she'd be like, dad, are you gonna tell me what to do? I'm like, you got this. And she's like, dad, I don't have this. I don't have this. And I remember having to think through, oh, that's right. You don't, you don't know automatically. There are things that we do automatically that we don't have to think about. We just do it because that's our body. Our body has been trained to do this. Now, um, our bodies are amazing, but they're not the whole story. That's good news, amen. Uh, you and I are not all just the stuff our body is made of, which the older I get, the more grateful I am for that. So we have the will, and we have the mind, and we have the body, which now brings us to the soul. And, and this diagram, I want to draw it this way, 
so that you understand it more completely because this is truly how we understand the soul. Most oftentimes we reverse this. We want to put the soul at the center. It's sort of this mysterious thing. It's somewhere deep inside of us. But to truly understand the nature of the soul and a biblical understanding of the soul, we actually need to think of it this way because the soul encompasses all of this. Remember, the soul is the operating system of life. And just like your computer, you don't pay much attention to the operating system in your computer until things suddenly go wrong and you can't use a certain program. Something's not working, right? And you go, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that your operating system is off. And you go, I better fix the operating system. In the same way, when our thinking gets off, when our body gets off, when our will gets off, we start recognizing and we start saying, well, what's going on? Well, what's going on is that there's a a lack of functionality with your soul. Your soul, the operating system, something is broken. The operating system is your soul. And here's here's the interesting thing. Your soul is seeking harmony. Your soul is seeking connection. It's seeking integration with all of the other parts of who you are. That's why when we use the word integrity, it's such a deep soul word. When you say somebody has integrity, what are you saying? Well, what you're saying is, well, if if we sliced you, we would see that there is a consistency between your body and your mind and your will, and that all of those things, they're happening with a certain level of congruency, that those things are moving. There's, a, there's, there's something simpatico, if you will, about the way those things are working together. That is what we're talking about when we talk about the soul. It's, des- it's desiring harmony. So, so I want to just say this. Three things that the soul desires, if you're taking notes, so you understand your own soul wants these three things. Number one, it wants to integrate the mind and the body and the will. It wants you to be a whole person. Your soul is naturally inclined for those things to come in alignment with each other. And when they're not, your soul feels it. You know something's off. Like, I know that there's something off. There's something incongruent with these things. That feeling that you have, that is your soul speaking to you, saying, you need to bring this stuff into alignment. That's the first thing. The second thing that your soul desires is to connect you with the world around you, the people and the creation that's around you. Um, There is something in your soul that desires connection with other human beings. That's why sometimes you can hang out with somebody, and when you're done and somebody says, hey, how was your coffee with so-and-so? You say, well, it was good for my soul. Because you connected with them in a meaningful way. This is also why you can go for a hike and you can walk through the woods and you can hear the creek that's trickling trickling by you. And when you're done, somebody says, how was your hike? And you say, it was good for my soul because your soul wants to connect with others and with creation. So your soul, it wants to be integrated. It wants all of these parts together. It wants to connect. And then ultimately what your soul desires is to be connected with the one who created it. Your soul longs to be connected with your creator, with God. And so your soul, as this operating system, is driving for all of these things to be where they're supposed to be. Connected with people, connected with creation, connected with God, and then your will, your mind, and your body operating the way they're intended. That is what your soul is pressing for. It's contending for this. And when those things are in unison, you can feel it. You know it. There's this joy and there's this peace and there's this life. But when they're not, there's this angst. There's this frustration. In fact, um, we, we, know, we know when we are this because sentences like this resonate with us. Some of you have heard somebody say this. It's not about what you accomplish, but it's about who you become. Anyone ever heard that? It's not about what you accomplish. It's about who you become. Well, what are we talking about? 
That's soul stuff, right? It's not about getting stuff done. It's about who you are. The soul is about who you are. You can accomplish all sorts of amazing things and never have a soul that is at rest. So the soul says, I I want your will to be in alignment with with what you value and what God says you value. Uh, the, the, The soul says, I want your body to move in a direction. I want your body to be engaging in things. I want your appetites and your desires to be in alignment with with wholeness, the wholeness that God has for you. I want your mind, the things you think about, to be in alignment with what God wants your mind to be thinking about. That's what the soul is longing for. Now, on the other hand, what usually happens is our will lacks the power to overcome our minds. And so, because of that, our bodies, because of appetites and desires, make decisions and we move in a direction that then our mind has to justify, which we also call excuses. And we end up in this cycle. And we feel it. Which is why Jesus' words, they come to life. The same words we looked at last week, I want you to look at this week from a different angle. Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. Listen to what he says. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And then listen to this word. And he forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is talking about this soul stuff. He's saying, listen, you can do all this stuff, but what good is it if, if your soul is incongruent with, who you, with, with the rest of your being? Like if, if your whole body, your, your will, your mind, your emotions, if all of those things are out of sync, what good is it? That means you're losing your soul. What good is that? You forfeit it. It's interesting, the word forfeit, the Greek word is zemio. The word zemio, if you look at it in just about every other place in Greek, in ancient Greek, in the New Testament, it's translated damage or loss. Interestingly enough, um, there's another word for forfeit in the Greek language, and you know what it means? Forfeit. It's not the word used in Matthew 16, 26. I don't know why the English translators choose it, because literally what Jesus is saying is this, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and damages his soul? If you wreck your soul, what good is it? We feel this, this damage when our minds and our bodies and our will are out of rhythm, we feel the loss. Um, we, we feel lost, like we've lost our souls. And, and Jesus, when he, when he says to the people that are asking questions of who he is, he says, I've come to seek and save who? The lost. Lostness is a condition as much as it is a destination, even more so a condition, Right? We feel, when you feel lost, it means I can't find the destination. We feel lost when our souls are, are unsynchronized. And so Jesus comes to seek and, see, seek and save the lost, which means in the present, he's wanting us to be whole and integrated people. Basically, he's saying this, you don't have to live like this. You don't have to live like this. You don't have to be a disintegrated mess. You can actually live in wholeness. So Jesus tells this story, and there's this moment, it's in Mark chapter 4, I want to just unpack for a moment. Jesus tells this story, and it's a, it's a parable, and he's, he's teaching from a boat, there's a huge crowd that's gathered, they're listening to him, and he's giving a series of parables, and he's just unpacking things with these word pictures, and in Mark chapter 4, verse 3, this is one of the pictures that he gives them. He says, listen, 
Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And then other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depths of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And then other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this is a story. If you look at this, it seems like it's pretty simple. There are three characters in the story. There's the seed, there's the sower, and then there's some soil. And I think it's really helpful for us to point out that there are some constants in this story, and then there are some variables, and the variables have to do with us, and the constants have to do with what we can experience. So the first constant is the seed. That is a constant in the story. This is not a story about good seeds and bad seeds. Jesus just says there is a seed that gets spread, right? And the seed will take root given half a chance. Let me just tell you that the seed is a picture of God's desire and his action to redeem our souls, to bring wholeness to human beings. That is a constant. There is this desire and action that God has, and he's bringing this to us. He's saying, I want to heal your souls, I want to fix this incongruency, this sense of lostness, this thing that you're feeling in your life. The damage that you've done, I want to heal this. That's a constant. The second constant is the, is the sower, right? This isn't about good sowers and bad sowers. Notice this sower, just like God in heaven, is generous, right? He's scattering this seed, this desire to bring wholeness, and it goes everywhere, right? It's everywhere. It's all over the place. In fact, some people would say he seems a little sloppy, Right? Maybe God is a little sloppy with his desire to draw people into wholeness. Amen? <laughs> Can I just say that again? Maybe God is a little sloppy. Maybe God spreads this a little wider. Amen? Maybe God's trying to include more people. Maybe God's saying, listen, I want lots and lots of people to experience this. God is generous, right? There's this constant that we have a generous sower who's just saying, I want everybody to experience this. The soil is where this thing gets interesting, and the soil is what this ha where this has to do with us. The soil is the variable. The soil is the soul that receives the seed. So you notice there's different kinds of soil, which means there's different kinds of souls that are being described in the parable. And, and, and let me just tell you that when Jesus is speaking, when we're hearing somebody write from this standpoint in the Middle East during this time. They're writing in very, in very dry conditions. Um, the, the path that he describes is the path where the farmers would walk. It's the path that the sheep herders would draw their sheep along. It's the path that may get a little bit of rain, but because everyone travels there, immediately becomes hard pack again. The circumstances of life, the environmental conditions, create this place where the ground is hard. What Jesus seems to be indicating is this. Souls get this way. There are circumstances of life that just seem to keep passing over you over and over again. There's certain things. Maybe it's people. Maybe it's situations. It's events. There are things that happen and your soul gets hardened. Just the repetitive nature of life. You become hard. You get hurt. There's pain. There's bitterness. And what Jesus is saying is there's a condition of the soul. You can get so bitter. You can get so hardened that as much as God's trying to penetrate this and say, no, I've got life for you, it just sort of bounces off the surface and never takes root. 
You're never, you're just, there's no softness at all. There's just always this hardness. When you look at the scriptures, you see people like Cain and Abel, you see Jacob and Esau, you see these relationships. You see almost a contrast of people whose hearts are soul or soft and people whose souls are actually hardened. People who say, I'm going to take offense to things. I'm going to get what's mine. People who decide to be victims rather than be humans. And in those moments, their, their hearts become so hard, their souls become so hard that they don't receive the healing and the health that God has for them. Underneath this hardness, by the way, there is always this fear. Fear that I'm going to get hurt again. Fear that I'm going to get wounded. Fear that I'm going to be rejected. Fear that I'm going to be looked foolish to people. That, that's what exists underneath this. Our souls are saved when they get soft. So that's one soul. Then, then Jesus says there's another one. He says there's this shallow soil or shallow soul. He talks about the rocky ground. He talks about this place where there's a little bit of topsoil. There's this thin layer that goes across there. There's, there's just so much beauty in the descriptive language that he's using. This is the soil that gets scorched. This is the soil that the, the seed can't get deep because it's just left in the shallows of what's there. Um, you know, the world around us conspires against our souls. Um, the world around us, the culture around us, it, it, it's telling us this constantly. It's saying the place, it, it's saying this, you're going to find meaning in these places. Here's where you're going to find meaning. Here's where you're going to find value. Here's where you're going to find identity. And nearly every time our culture tells us where we're going to find identity or value or meaning, when you take a step back because of some other circumstance, what you see is all of that stuff is just in that thin topsoil. It's all the shallow stuff. Our culture presses to keep us in the shallows. It's always doing these things. It's not until we begin to experience depth because of circumstances that we start to see this. Maybe you've, um, maybe you've been there for the birth of a child and suddenly your eyes are open and you realize there's so much more to life than what I thought was life. Maybe there's been a loss of somebody close to you and you suddenly realize, no, there's, there's something bigger than this. Uh, maybe at some moment in time, you captured a sense of what eternity is. And when you captured that sense of eternity, you just realize, no, there's something deeper that's here. There's something more to this. The author and, and teacher Richard Foster, he said this. He said, superficiality is the curse of our age. We just live in this superficial world and we're trying to sell superficiality as depth. So we think we've got it, but we just don't. And yet we long for it. A deep soul is conscious of eternity, and a deep soul is connected to its creator that knows that there's more going on than just the stuff that's around us. A deep soul is one that understands the gospel, that looks at themselves and, and other people around them and says, there's a brokenness that's latent in humanity, but there's also a redemption that's possible for humanity. That's, that's a deep soul. And so Jesus says there are, there are souls that are just sort of living in the shallows, just kind of trying to make meaning out of stuff that there's no meaning there. Then there's a third one, and this, one, um, this one's particularly poignant for me. Then there's what I would call the cluttered or the weedy soil. He says some seeds fall among the thorns. In fact, there's this old saying, maybe you've heard this, that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Right? Those are funny little sayings, um, but they're also true. <laughs> because the busy soul, soul, it gets attached to the wrong things. 
we start to mistake the clutter of life for life. We start to think that all the stuff we're doing is actually life. And so you become preoccupied with all the externals, the success, the reputation, um, the ceaseless activity, the getting things done, the to-do list, and you just sort of hurry through your days just trying to get everything done, and then you wake up the next morning and you do it all over again. We live in this soul-fragmenting, soul-challenging world where there's so much clutter that it can just, like for me, it just keeps me distracted. I'm just going to... Do you ever open up your, your journal, your Bible, and you start wondering to yourself, when was the last time I actually took this time to pause? And then you're like unpleasantly surprised and you go, well, no wonder. I've been so busy, you didn't even think about it. Leonard Cohen said this, he said, the blizzard of the world has crossed the threshold and it has overturned the order of the soul. We have allowed this blizzard of busyness to rush into and cross the threshold of our lives, and it clutters our souls. And then, and then Jesus, his final description, he says, there's good soil. And maybe you go like this, okay, well, so what's the good soil? Well, the good soil, Jesus doesn't get really into it. He just basically leaves it for us to draw the conclusion. Apparently, it's the opposite of all those other things, right? If you want good soil, well, then it's soil that isn't hard, it's soil that, that, isn't, that isn't shallow, that it's actually thinking about those things that are deep. It's soil that isn't cluttered. Jesus says, if you can get to that place, then there's this wholeness that God has for you. There's this seed that he's just scattering. He's saying, I want this for you. And it's going to sink deep into your life, and you will live a rich, beautiful, integrated, healthy life when you have a soul that has the conditions that allow that to take place. Amen? Would you pray with me right now? We're going to close by doing something just a little bit different. And I just want to, I want to encourage you right now to just, because, because of everything I just said, we might not get another chance to do this. This is the space we create for this. Will you, just in, in all sincerity and in, in a moment of transparency before God, will you just assess the condition of your soul? Is it, is it hardened and bitter and in need of softening? Is it shallow, trying to make meaning out of stuff where meaning could never be found? Is it trying to find identity and stuff where identity could never be found? Is it cluttered? Is it just so busy? So many commitments, so many things, trying to feel validated because a lot of stuff got done. Is, your, is, is it just cluttered? Maybe like me, it's all three in different levels, in different ways. In this moment, there's an opportunity for us to invite God to soften, to deepen, to declutter. Would you just take a moment and just say, God, I want my soul to be the kind of place that can receive 
your wholeness. Well, Lord, this morning we sit before you in this place with um, our wills, as weak as they may be, our minds as distracted as ever, our bodies full of cravings and desires. We sit before you with all of these things and realizing that what we need more than anything else is a touch from you, your wholeness to come into all those areas, to integrate them, to align them, to bring them to a place where all of them are connected. Lord, would you show us the ways, would you just reveal to us, maybe even the next couple of days, the places where stuff we're thinking, stuff we're doing is just inconsistent and incongruent. And would you give us the courage to call it like it is, to bring that stuff back to alignment and to experience a soul that is refreshed and renewed by you. We love you, Lord. Thank, Lord, thank you for loving us in our brokenness. Thank you for meeting us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys stand with me? This morning, if you want to pray with somebody, there's going to be some folks down front to pray with you. If um, you're interested in just deciding to follow Jesus or want to know about what that, more about what that means, um, that's also a place you can begin that conversation. But I'm going to offer the benediction right now. And if you or want to, you can open your hands to receive it as I offer it to you. May you be men and women whose souls, if they've been hardened, become soft. May you find the depths of what it means to be human. And may you have the courage to eradicate the clutter that crowds out the wholeness that Jesus has for you. May you have a soul that is cared for and healthy in Jesus' name. Amen.